0: Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org.
1: So we've been working through... 1 Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be, <clears throat> as normal and, and, and as Kyle kind of said last week, um, we're going to continue, I think, to be radically challenged and made to feel a bit uncomfortable. But at the same time, I believe that we are deeply and radically encouraged and if you're listening, have the opportunity for overwhelming joy from what God speaks to us this morning. Hard and awesome is what I, what I see from scripture. You know, we have grown up in kind of a corner um, of history, church history and culture where in a lot of ways we've been protected and privileged with a very low cost of discipleship. Um, I don't know if that's really a good thing, but when you look at the cost of following Jesus throughout church history, we have a very, very minimal cost in our lifetimes. Um, Yeah, and arguably it's getting more difficult but it certainly isn't even up to the place of being costly. Um, In fact, in a lot of ways we have been able to, whether good or bad, we've been able to have legal protections for ourselves so that we don't have to have a great cost of discipleship. We don't have to give things up to follow Jesus. But Peter's asking a question this morning as we look through 1 Peter chapter three. He's, he's been kind of building toward this, but he's asking this, that how does a Jesus follower deal with hostility, whether it's just tension all the way to persecution, because of our trust and faith in Jesus? There's an assumption that he has that, that in following Jesus, you and I, those he's writing to, we will face some kind of hostility because we are obeying Jesus and we, and we have faith in him. And so what do you do when you suffer for that? Um, not suffer because you've done something extraordinarily dumb or because you've been a jerk or because you have misrepresented God, but but because you have obeyed Jesus and done good and you are facing Blow back from that. Think about this. Uh, I was talking to a friend this week, and, and he, he, he repeated this statement that he'd heard. I think it's pretty significant. He said, to not be hated by the world, but flattered and even celebrated by it is probably the worst position for a Jesus follower to be in. To not be hated by the world, but in Embraced and celebrated by it is a terrible position for a Jesus follower to be in. I don't know if you agree with that statement or, or think that that statement is problematic, but, but, but I think it sounds pretty accurate to the statements that I hear in Scripture that Jesus makes about being associated with him and how the world would would react to that. You know, the call to discipleship is actually a call to, to allegiance to the suffering savior. And in a lot of ways, we, we, we miss that. Um, chapter 13, or chapter three, starting in verse 13 in First Peter, he begins or continues his thoughts, and he says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Um, And that's that's a great question. That that question kind of demands like a, a like an answer. It's it's the answer's indicative there. It's it's of course no one should harm. No one should be harmed, or treated poorly for doing good. Right? That is that is just obvious. That is a thing that should be true. It's appropriate to be true that when you do good things, you should have good done back to you. Or when you do good things, those good things should be appreciated. When you do good things, the most ridiculous thing is for bad to be done to you or for you to suffer for doing a good thing. And Peter, I think, totally recognizes that that ought to be the default setting of life. That when you do good, you receive good instead of though him continuing on in his writing and saying, saying, you know, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, instead of saying, well, no one, only really, really terrible people will do bad to someone who's doing good. Unfortunately, he doesn't say that. He says with this assumption, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He says, I get that, that we all feel pretty strongly that doing good should result in good being done to us, but you will, if you do, and I think the if is a bit generous, if you suffer for doing good, he says, then you will be blessed. And, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting. He, he specifies Doing good for righteousness' sake, on behalf of Jesus, in obedience to Jesus, in obedience to the Holy Spirit. If you are doing good because of Jesus and you suffer, you are blessed. Again, he's he's talking about suffering because we have obeyed and we are doing good in the name and on behalf and in the character of Jesus, and then we face suffering for it. And, and and so he says, you will be blessed. And what I, what I think is interesting about this, this isn't just Peter going off on a limb and saying, dang, you'll be blessed. And given the Holy Spirit was directing his writing, but it, Peter's not the first one to say this. If you go back to, to, to Jesus in the Gospels and in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, do you remember what he says later on in the Beatitudes? He says, blessed are you who are perse- persecuted for righteousness sake, for my sake, you will be blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter's not just saying this of his own authority. He's saying this because Jesus said it. I think it's interesting that the Beatitudes is this this list of things for those who follow Jesus. I've, I've I've heard it described as like the Bill of Rights, but you know what's interesting? In our country, we have a Bill of Rights, and in a lot of ways, I think, my experience kind of being ingrained in that, we tend to think of things in the category or, 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 or the, the, the context of our rights. But you know, for the person who follows Jesus, there is no bill of rights, but there is a bill of blessing. And, and it's much greater than a bill of rights. Because when someone does something mean to me as a Jesus follower, I don't have the right to respond to them in a way that the world would and respond to them in kind. I don't have that right as a Jesus follower. But I do have a blessing that Jesus says, if you are merciful to those who are mean to you, you will inherit the earth. You have a blessing. See, one of the things that we need to do to adjust the way we think is we need to stop thinking in terms of our rights and we need to think in terms of our blessings that are promised when we obey Jesus. That's a huge difference. And and, and so he says, but if you should suffer for righteousness, sake, you will be blessed. And then he says this, he says, have no fear of them, those who are attacking you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord as holy. He actually is quoting almost word for word Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And to give you a little bit of context that kind of relates to the situation um, Peter is speaking toward, because he's speaking toward a people who are scattered and they are under threat because of their lifestyle that ladders up to Jesus Christ. And so in, in, in Isaiah chapter eight, we get this story in this context where, where Israel is, is, is being threatened on all sides by these other nations. There's threats of destruction of God's people. And so Isaiah, God's prophet, is, is telling them, Fear God and trust God. Don't fear the nations around you. And, and so what's happening in, in the nation is that the leaders and the people are saying, we need to make alliances with some other nations around us so that we can help defend ourselves and we, we can be saved through that. And, 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 and the prophet is saying, no, don't make alliances with these other nations. Don't fear the nations that are threatening you, but fear God and trust Him and trust Yahweh as holy. And so what what, what Isaiah uh, chapter eight, there in like 11, 12, and 13, what what you see there is is God says to Isaiah, go to the people and tell them, this is not a conspiracy because the people are saying and the leaders are saying, don't listen to these prophets who are saying to trust God and not make alliances. That's a conspiracy theory. And God is saying to Isaiah, Isaiah says, tell them it is not a conspiracy, but you need to fear God. Do not fear those nations because I'm your God and trust me and consider God holy. Look at, look at what Peter says right here. He says, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Christ is the same context as Yahweh, God of all gods. Peter's talking about that. And he's saying God is the same then as he is now. Put your fear and trust in God and God alone. And then he says, okay, so again, in this context of suffering for doing good, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I feel like this is is one of those verses, parts of a verse, that is notoriously taken out of context and used as a right rather than a blessing. You see, because if you are tracking with the context of what Peter is saying, when he says, always make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, he's not talking about battling other people. Not talking about defense the way we think of a defensive posture. Like oftentimes we think, well, I need to make a defense of Christianity or a defense of my faith, or a defense of the gospel against this evil culture around us. That's not what this is saying at all, on any level. What this is saying is, is always be ready when you are doing good, and you are facing hostility for that good, while you are walking with Jesus, while you are blessing your enemies, Kyle talked about last week, and you continue to get treated poorly, be ready because your posture of continuing to do good and fearing God alone and trusting Jesus as holy, there will come a point that some of those who are attacking you will be compelled to say, why do you keep reacting this way to me? Why aren't you lashing out at me? Why aren't you attacking me? Why aren't you defending yourself? And then when those people ask, be ready to explain to them why you have this hope and why you are able to bear the suffering that they are imposing on you. Because you see, some people will eventually ask you because when you do good to someone who's doing bad to you, they'll either kill you, they'll get away from you, Or in frustration, they will say, why are you the way you are? (laughs) Now, why are you the way you are is not always a good question. Because oftentimes when Christians are asked why they are the way they are, it's because they've been foolish. But there's a great context of why are you the way you are, is when we obey the scripture Obey Jesus, obey what God has given us, and we do good in the midst of suffering for it and continue to do good. And then someone finally says, Okay, I'm so, what is wrong with you that you continue to do good in the midst of what I'm doing to you, and you are able to say a defense of the hope that you have? You know why I can do that? Because I fear God more than you and I trust God, and I know that Jesus is for me, and he is my inheritance, and I am a priest who represents God's character to you, and God, even in the midst of the evil that you're doing, wants you to be in his family. That's our defense. In fact, he goes on and kind of, I don't know, teaches a, a Christian self-defense course. I don't, know, I don't know if you remember these, but I got way into these. There was these little tiny books back, I don't even know, maybe like the late 90s, maybe the early 2000s, somewhere in there. And there were little books and they were like how-to books. They were like survival, how to be a spy, how to do all this stuff. Like the how-to survival books, I don't know if you remember those, but like they were, they were everyday occurrences, like how to survive a shark attack. Um, or like how to survive an alligator, or how to survive jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. I don't know how that ends well, but, but like there was a the little how-to. Like I remember, I remember one of the little books was like how, to be, how to like how to be a spy, and like all of these things. It was just these ridiculous little books. But, but I think Peter gives us a how-to in Christian self-defense. Here's what he says. Because remember, these believers who he's writing to are in the midst of these hostility, being hostile towards, and they're suffering for doing good. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If Jesus was teaching a self-defense course, the primary lessons would be gentleness and respect. he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Um, In other words, having a good conscience, meaning that you know that you actually represented Jesus accurately to the people who he wants to reveal himself to. That you've actually represented him accurately versus the way you wanted to defend yourself. So he says, when you're giving this defense... How many people have defended the gospel in a way that you would describe gentle and and, and respectful? We don't see that. But that's what scripture tells us to do. Why? Because we don't have a bill of rights, we have a bill of blessing. And we obey Jesus in this, he will bless us. And, and, And so he says that when You're slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. We're not shaming people, but here's the reality. The thing that happens in a human soul when someone is being super rotten to someone who's being good to them, it grades on them, and there is shame that comes out of that. They are ashamed of themselves. Now, they might not admit it, but it's true. It is human nature. And for some of those who are shamed that way, some of those will come back around and say, Why are you the way you are? And then with gentleness and respect, you can say, I'm the way I am because of Jesus. Because Jesus rescued me, Jesus gives me the hope and the perseverance to treat you good even though you've hurt me and you've attacked me and you've done terrible things to me. God, he gives me the strength to do good to you. I want you to know that there's hope for you too. And I think in that moment, that's the clear conscience of representing Jesus well in the moment of their own shame. Now, not everyone will ask. Some will just avoid you. Some will turn up the heat. But but listen to what he says next. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. In other words, you have a choice in the midst of that. You can act like the world with your language and the way you treat people and the way you respond to those who are doing evil to you, which basically Peter implies you're doing evil then because that's not what Jesus asked you to do. He says, so it's better that you suffer for doing good if it be the Lord's will. You realize that it's possible that it is God's will for us in a moment to suffer for doing good so that someone else may find salvation. In fact, our witness under suffering is one of the most powerful testimonies for those who are unsaved. it's interesting because, again, just we have in our space, we have all but eliminated suffering for doing good in Jesus' name. We have legislated in a way that we can do good for Jesus and we are religiously protected under doing that good. And I wonder if that has... I wonder if that has... diminished our discipleship. I wonder if those protections that we're so keen on has actually caused us to have growth deficiencies in discipleship because part of discipleship and becoming like Jesus is suffering for doing good in his name. Now he says all this and you're kind of like, okay, well why? From verses 18 to 22, he gives, I I, I would say, overall, I think, four clear reasons why we should be willing, as Jesus' followers, he calls us to be willing to suffer for doing good. And it's all centered on Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Number one reason that we would suffer for doing good is because Jesus suffered for doing good. We are supposed to be like Jesus. We are called to be transformed to be like Jesus. Jesus suffered for doing good. He calls us into suffering for doing good. If you want to be like Jesus, then while you may not look for suffering for doing good, you will walk through suffering for doing good. Then he says, that he, Jesus, might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. He he says, the second reason is because Jesus, because it's how Jesus brought us to God. And that's how we have an opportunity to bring others to God as well. Through our suffering for doing good. See, not only did he just... Bring us to God. But but he brought us intimacy and access to God, which is we as God's priests, oftentimes it is through the visible suffering that we endure from those who don't understand. Why would someone endure that? We bring others into into God's presence through our suffering for doing good. That's the second reason. The the third reason, it says, um, down further, it, it says, uh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It says Christ, in, down in verse 22, Christ who has gone into heaven is in, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. Because it is through suffering that Jesus brought victory over all of the cosmic powers. And it's through that very same suffering that we remind ourselves and those same powers that Jesus was victorious. And and, and then, and then the fourth reason is this. In verse 21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because this is not the end, but the predetermined path toward resurrection. And see, why would you willingly suffer for doing good? Because Jesus suffered for doing good, because that's how he brought us to God, because it's the way Jesus demonstrates his victory over the cosmic power, evil powers in the world and the universe, and because it's not the end, but the predetermined path toward resurrection. You see, the suffering of Christ led to his victory, and therefore our suffering with, with Christ leads to our de- deliverance and our victory. That's why we should be willing to suffer for doing good, because Jesus did. We are called to be like Christ, follow his example. He says, follow my example. This is his example. Now, that's the big picture of verses 18 to 22. How many people think like verses 18 to 22, those are a bit confusing? Yeah, a little bit. But you know what? They're not just confusing, they're awesome. (laughs) There are some things here that I just want to briefly touch on because it is so awesome. And we cannot miss this. Uh, so, so here, this is in the context again, remember, of, of suffering for doing good and why we would do that. Why we would be willing to suffer for doing good and what it means for the world around us. So, so there's two things. There's, there's, there's this a little bit confusing for us, not for those that Peter was writing to because they were absolutely on the same page. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, which is right where we hear and read about God's judgment on the evil that he sees throughout all the world and the flood. There's a passage leading into that, which, again, feels weird to us because it's talking about these spiritual fallen angels or spiritual beings, the sons of God who had relations with, the, with human women and this race called the Nephilim came out of it and there was all of this evil and then it, he goes on to say everything that man did was evil in God's sight and it says that God Brought judgment. And so God called Noah, who was the one faithful person to God, calls him out and says, I want you to build an ark. And so for 120 years, God said, at this point, He said, I will give humankind 120 years to repent from their wicked ways for these fallen evil angels and spiritual beings to turn from their wickedness, I will give 120 years until I pronounce judgment. And the total of eight people, Noah and his family, actually re- responded to God's invitation and got on the ark and were saved when the flood came. And God's judgment on those spirit, spiritual beings, those fallen angels, was that he put them into this abyss, this deep abyss of hell. And what this is talking about, and I want you to hear this, it says that Jesus, when he was put to death in the flesh, And before he was raised and ascended to the right hand of God, Jesus went to that abyss where those spiritual beings were. These aren't spirits of humans, but spiritual beings who rebelled against God in the great rebellion. Jesus goes and it says, and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. There's two different terms in the New Testament that that can be translated into proclaimed. One is euangelion, which is like a proclamation of the gospel. That's not the word used here. The word here, I would translate it in today's terms as Jesus went to the spirits in prison and did his victory lap. Because he went to let them know that they are defeated. They are done and they will not cause havoc anymore because God has judged them and Jesus has died, rose, and ascended on high to the name above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every everyone, every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That these spirits have just watched Jesus take a victory lap to say, you are defeated, you have no power over my creation. That's what Jesus did. What what an awesome thing. And that's what we are attached to. And and, and so then he says, and then he brings in baptism. Now, what does baptism have to do with this? And just so that nobody freaks out, when he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, How many people read that and say like, well, wait, 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 wait. We don't get saved through baptism, right? Okay, here's here's Peter, it's not heresy, here's what Peter's doing. Because Jesus says when he left the disciples, he says, I want you, this is what you're to be about, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything I commanded you. For Peter, this is the process. A person claims faith in Jesus, you baptize that person, and you teach that person to obey everything Jesus taught you. There was no distinction or separation between a verbal declaration of faith in Jesus and baptism. There wasn't a waiting period. There wasn't a, hey, let's hold on. It was just, if if you were able to, you did it right then. So Peter's not saying you have to get baptized to be saved, but because listen to what he says. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal from dirt, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. How are you saved? You are saved through, the, through grace, by faith, in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And in obedience, you you are baptized and you are taught all that Jesus commanded. So, so don't, don't freak out with that. But in a lot of ways, in Protestantism and even in, in the evangelical church, we have worked so hard to distance ourselves from the Catholic church that we have taken things like communion and baptism and said, it's only symbols. It's only symbolic. It almost means nothing. That's not true. That's as bad as making baptism an idol. Just the opposite end. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Corresponds to what? Noah and the flood? There's a theme in scripture. Water and salvation. God took Noah through the waters to salvation. God took the Israelites through the waters of the Red Sea to salvation from, from Egypt's army. God took the Israelites across the Jordan River safely into the promised land, into their inheritance, to a land of salvation. And in the New Testament, we see that, that, that climaxed in that Jesus calls us to be baptized and raised with Christ as a participation in the salvation that he brought us. Here, here's what we need to recognize. Uh, and, and, and this is the thing that we need to understand about baptism. Baptism is not just something you do and everybody claps. Baptism, when a person is baptized, the, the video that you saw of those people on Monday night who were being baptized, baptism is not just something that's obedience or good to do but baptism is a pledge it is it is an appeal or a loyalty saying i am loyal i am on the side of king jesus in this cosmic war i have sided with christ that is what baptism is it is i have sided with christ in this cosmic war and what is even more awesome is that baptism Is a visceral reminder to all the fallen angels and spiritual beings that they have been defeated. Every time a person is baptized, that person in the church is saying to the universe, to the cosmic battle, that Jesus Christ has defeated all evil finally and forever, and that we are on the side of King Jesus, and that we live in that victory and all of the defeat of all of evil for all time. Yes, that is what baptism is. Baptism was, and still is, spiritual warfare. It is one of the greatest weapons to remind the enemy that he is defeated and has no power over us. And that is not just symbolic. That is real, and that has meaning, and that has consequence. It's so awesome. To think that that's what God is communicating. When we go and we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I've been getting these magazines in the mail, The Voice of the Martyrs. I didn't get a subscription. They just keep coming. I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit signed me up or something. But As I was working on this passage this week, I got another magazine, and it talks about the church in China. And right here on the front, can't see it, but, but there's a title. China, the Privilege of Persecution. And in, in, this, in this particular issue, there's a story about a church in China called Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, tells a story of Pastor Wang Yi through the eyes of a woman who was part of that church named Rooting. And she tells a story, the first time that the pastor was arrested by the Chinese government was June 3rd of 2012. If you know anything about China's history, June 4th is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. So the officials came in and arrested the pastor June 3rd and held him for two days so that he wouldn't inspire his church to speak out for justice and remember the horrific acts of the Chinese government in Tiananmen Square. And then they describe a process that since that day in 2012, it became normative in their church for their pastor to be arrested and released regularly. So they say why why is uh, why is pastor Yi not here today? Well, he's in prison. So he won't be preaching this Sunday. But he'll probably be out next week. And so that became normative. But then in 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 2018 on December 9th, they said something very different happened. Everything changed that day. Because The pastor was arrested along with his wife, the church leaders, and 150 people in the church were arrested by the Chinese government. This young woman wasn't at home at that time, but she heard that the Chinese officials were waiting at her home, the home of her parents. And so she didn't go home that day, but the the official showed up at her parents' home And the officers attempted to force her parents to sign a document saying that they would leave their church and not interact with anyone from the church any longer. They refused to sign it. And then the authorities said, where is your daughter? And they said, we don't know. And they threatened to harm her father and 10-year-old brother if she didn't come in for questioning. And so after she spent some time praying with, with some other believers, she went and turned herself in and she was put through the same thing. Some members feared that the church would struggle as a result of the raid, but instead the church grew stronger. No one gave up their faith. I saw church members who were braver and they kept worshiping every week, even without Pastor Yi. We are always worshiping God. Eventually, the Chinese Communist authorities arrested a Christian couple and took custody of their four adopted children under the pretense of saving them from a cult, a dangerous cult. And Rooting and her family made a, had to make plans to exile themselves through a course of different countries to the United States. And so they now live in the United States in exile from China. This is what she says. I think persecution is quite a blessing from God. It changed our life. God has us here to share what is happening in China. I think it is a blessing to the Chinese church. I think the gospel in China will flourish more. Before persecution, I sometimes felt a little lazy about my faith. The persecution made me feel that the future kingdom will come. Persecution made me feel like I'm flourishing in my faith. What an incredible thing. But we don't really have a category for that, do we? It would be arrogant for us to suggest that we know what that's like, even with things how things are going in our country. That's nothing compared to this. But I was talking to a friend this week and he said that he was talking to a couple and this couple was having a bit of a disagreement because the wife was was helping in a, in a ministry, kind of like our Monday night community. And, and she goes and helps feed people and, and meets with people and, and talks with people and helps people with physical needs. And, and her husband was saying that, um, these people need to get jobs. That's what they would do if they were responsible. And going and doing these things is only causing the problem to continue. So they had this conversation. One of the things that she explained was that not all of these people are irresponsible the way that he might assume they are. And she said, you know, every meal that I help feed them means that they don't have to spend money on that food and that helps with their utilities, that helps with the things because they're among the working poor in our country. And he was telling me that that in the midst of this conversation, the husband started to feel a little bit ashamed of how he was talking, and shifted his thoughts. We can relate to that, can't we? Sometimes we're doing something because we know that the Bible clearly says it, but maybe many of us in church, our particular sensitivities are, enraged by what Jesus calls us to do, and so we sometimes take it out on other believers who are actually living in obedience. We can kind of relate to that, can't we? Regardless if we're in China or here, what Jesus calls all of his followers toward is suffering for good, being blessed and responding in a way That it draws others to Christ. We're gonna do communion right now, and I can't help but be reminded of Psalm 23, the most repeated psalm, maybe scripture, in all the Bible. There's a part of Psalm 23 that says this And you prepare a table for me. What is the rest of that? In the presence of my enemies. Psalm 23 was a shadow, a, an image of communion. Jesus says to his disciples, his disciples in Luke, he says, I've eagerly anticipated sharing this table with you. The table that they were made aware of back in Psalm 23, where it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus prepared a table. What was the, pre- what was the context there? It was in the midst of the enemies. There was one at the table and there was a whole army coming for him. Jesus prepared a table for his disciples in the presence of their enemies. And you know what he did? He didn't say, we're gonna go out, we're gonna defeat them. He said, we're gonna defeat them by continuing to do good and suffer for it. And I will give my life with, my body will be broken and my blood will be shed for those enemies that I prepared a table for you in the midst of. And in doing so, I will proclaim forever my victory over all evil every time one of you gets baptized. So let's take the bread. And Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body at this table in the presence of our enemies that is broken not only for you, but for those who are coming this night to illegally arrest me. Let's take that together. And then Jesus took the cup. He said, "This is my blood. It will be shed at at the table that I call people to. In the presence of our enemies, while we suffer for doing good, it is the blood that will be shed." for their salvation. So that when they ask you, why do you have this hope? You can invite them to this table and say, because of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, let's take the the drink together. I've asked my friend Harry, who is part of our church and the Chinese church here, to come up and pray for us as we close. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward and, and after Harry prays, if you need prayer this morning, I want you to come forward. But I've I have, I have asked Harry to pray because Harry has a much more significant connection and understanding of what our brothers and sisters in China and many all over the world deal with. And I've asked him to pray for us. So Harry, could you pray for us?
0: Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for what you're doing in the country of China and Iran, in places that our fellow brothers and sisters of Christ are experiencing persecution. It is so hard to say this, but God, I thank you. In the midst of all this suffering for doing good, God, the gospel never stopped. Your faithfulness never stopped. Your love never stopped. God, I know this exact moment on the other side of the world, a brother and sister in China on their knees, crying out loud to you and begging you not for their own safety, but God, that in their own lifetime, they get to see arrival of churches, that people's heart will be softened. They could come to you and declare that you are the king of king. So God, at this moment, I want to join in on that prayer. Our body here want to join in on that prayer with them. For the church leaders and people that are experiencing persecution, but God, suffering for doing good, I pray that they bring glory to your name. And their suffering brings blessings to people that caused us to suffer. God, I want to pray for the small groups, the family churches in China and the other people, other places that are experiencing persecution that with every, any excuses to gather for book club, gather for tea time, gather to, to learn English, that God, in these groups, I pray that you will equip disciples And priests of God to go out there and continue to bring glory, continue to share the gospel. And God, I pray for our body here. God, I pray that you take away the sleepiness and laziness that's in me right now. And God, I pray that you bring urgency to all of us to go out there in our community, in our neighborhood, in our family, to live out a life that is good representation of what Jesus had done. So when the day comes, when the day of persecution come in our life, our faith will not be shaken. Blessed are those who experience persecution for their righteousness, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven God, let your will be done. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Point.